Let's turn then to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 12. This is a study of contrasts. Last week in chapter 11, we looked at the dark and disturbing world of religious fear, where everything is out of perspective and everything is about how things look. And here in chapter 12, we enter the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ as He speaks to His disciples where everything He is putting back in, in proper perspective and where things are not about how they seem to be but how they are. The contrast could hardly be greater. So let's read Luke 12, 1-21. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man will also acknowledge Him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities... Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Jesus is, as we see in verse, that's a long verse, verse 1, isn't it? In the middle of verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's really important. Because we tend to read a passage like that and read everything that Jesus is saying about, you know, when you're put before synagogues and rulers and so on, and immediately apply what he's saying to us. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And so what he's saying, he was saying to them in a particular setting, at a particular time, for a particular reason. And we need to understand why he was saying 
these amazing things to his disciples, what was he promising them? He's just exposed this vile world of religious darkness to them. Those of you who weren't here last week, just skim your eyes back over chapter 11, verses 37 onwards, and you can dip your toe into the cold water of religious legalism and the world of religious works where everything is counted and measured and everything has to look right and everyone has to be in their right places. But underneath is a sour septic sewer of immorality. And here, Jesus says to the twelve, this is what I want you to know. You need, he says, first of all, to be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees. We've just looked at a world, he's saying to them, of the Pharisees and their religious comings and goings where everything is upside down. Everything is out of perspective. What is unimportant is made to be important. What is important is made to be unimportant. But you twelve, you twelve, be aware. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, what is it about yeast? What's, why is... Why is Jesus using this uh, metaphor? What, what is this thing about the yeast of the Pharisees? We need to know, don't we, something about yeast and something about the Pharisees and something about Jesus' world to understand what he's saying. I suspect there's only about half a dozen of us who've ever even handled or used yeast, maybe a wee bit more in Posh Stock Bridge where we make our own bread, but what, what's yeast? The thing that Jesus is saying is that this tiny little thing, yeast, and a tiny amount of it, has a totally pervasive and completely disproportionate impact compared to its size. Tiny little amount of yeast goes in, and the whole loaf rises. Miss out that one tiny thing, and nothing happens. The impact is big, and the yeast of the Pharisees, he tells us what it is, is their hypocrisy, their lack of perspective, their ability to tip everything upside down and be one thing while they are claiming or pretending or acting as if they are another. Their ability to be unrighteous whilst proclaiming themselves to be this world of righteous finesse and religious superiority. Jesus says, watch out for that, for their hypocrisy will have a huge impact like yeast. Be careful about it. You, he says to his 12 disciples, now you, you, lot, you pretend you are the 12 listening to Jesus. He's speaking to you. You lot, watch out for that because you're coming with me into, into a world where in your lives, unlike the Pharisees, everything's going to be blown open. 
They're trying to hide everything all the time. They live like that. They carry the burden and the shame of covering up what they're really like all the time in their religious world. But you 12, you 12, come with me. Because with you 12 and me, the truth will out. Everything's going to be exposed. Everything about our lives is going to be blown open for the whole world to see. No covering up. No hypocrisy like the Pharisees. With me and you twelve, it's totally different. So, is that frightening for the twelve? Probably. Is it mystifying for the twelve? Possibly. But he says, what's the first thing he says? Verse 4, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, out of role play, back into being yourselves, if I was to tell you everything that you had ever thought, everything that was hidden, everything that was locked away in the dark corners of your minds was about to be blown out into the open, what would you, would you be afraid of? We'd be terrified. We would run for the hills and put our heads into the peat bog and hopefully never be seen again. But he's saying to the disciples, in terms of that's not what he's talking about, you see. He's saying to the disciples, in terms of your part in God's kingdom, you don't need to be afraid of openness. You don't need to be afraid of a world where everything can be seen and everything can be displayed. Don't be afraid of it. And the way he underlines and helps them to go forwards. Now, we know where they were going. They were going to the place where Jesus would be put to death. They were going to the place where Jesus would rise and ascend to heaven and leave them with the Holy Spirit to make the gospel known in a hostile world. We know where they were headed. And we can anticipate how afraid they might be. And he's saying to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And here's how he gets through to them that they shouldn't be afraid. The reality of God's hold on their lives and the value that God's, God places on their lives. The Pharisees and the religious world lives in fear all the time, afraid of getting it wrong, afraid of not doing enough, afraid of not being good enough, afraid of being found out, afraid of breaking the rules, afraid of slipping backwards in our world of religious order, afraid of not being everything that we think we need to be to, to please God. That's the religious world of the Pharisees. It's a world riddled with fear. But with Almighty God, who, yes, has control over heaven and hell, in charge of our lives, 
if we fear Him, there is no other fear because He values us so much and treats us with such grace and mercy that there is nothing left to fear. That's perspective. That's the right way round. You see, perfect fear, fear of Almighty God, drives out every other fear. That's what he's saying to these twelve men on the brink of a life of torture and imprisonment and exile and goodness knows what else they would face and martyrdom, most of them. But don't be afraid of any of that. There is nothing to fear in any of that if you fear the God who loves you and loves you to the extent that, well, you can't place a value on it. It's impossible for you to understand, says Jesus, how much God loves and holds your 12 lives within his kingdom. And the same is true of us. Two sparrows are sold for whatever it is. Two pennies. Five sparrows, sorry, sold for two pennies. How many sparrows are you worth? What's the cost? How many sparrows is a human being worth? Buffering. We can't, we can't place a value on it. More sparrows than anybody could count. So what's the value, the financial value of a human life? It's immeasurable. You can't, you can't equate it with money. All the very hairs of your head are all numbered, he says to these twelve disciples. There are people who are going to crucify them and flog them and put them in prison. There are people who are going to stone them and chase them out of town and harangue them. And they'd be left with nothing and nobody in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people whom Jesus is talking to would lose everything in life for the risen Lord Jesus whose gospel they were going to proclaim. And Jesus says to them, Ah, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. All of that can happen to you disciples. But that doesn't even take a chink off the value that you have in the hand of Almighty God. For these twelve with the Holy Spirit are going to send the living truth of the gospel into all the nations of the world. Who could ever place a value in the lives of these twelve? Who could ever predict the importance of them being courageous enough to proclaim the gospel even though they would be put to death for doing so. Here is real perspective. He says to them in verses 8 to 10, you know, there's, there's something you need to know, you 12 guys. There's a future that I can tell you all about now. 
I tell you, he says, he's speaking to his disciples, not to us. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Well, that's, that was going to be the rest of their lives, wasn't it? Acknowledging Jesus before men. That would be their, their ministry, their passion. That would be what they would do every day. Point people to Jesus and acknowledge him to be the risen Lord of all the world. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. I wonder if Jesus is meaning Simon Peter, who disowned him. Why is he saying that to the, the twelve disciples? Who would all run away at the time of his crucifixion and hide. Turn their backs on him and flee. Yeah, you'll be forgiven for that. But if you harden your heart and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. Judas, I think. A day is coming, you twelve disciples, when you will need to understand that your acknowledging of me will be possible because you know that I will acknowledge you. And then he goes on, doesn't he? When you're brought before synagogues where after the crucifixion and the resurrection now, when the day comes, when you're brought into rulers and authorities and brought before courts and councils and you'll be asked to defend what you're doing and what you're saying about this Jesus guy. Don't worry about what you'll say then. Because the Holy Spirit will be with you and He'll tell you what to say. You can read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. He, Jesus, is not, Jesus is not speaking to us. Jesus is not saying, if you're dragged before Edinburgh City Council for belonging to an extremist church that isn't in line with today's policies of progressive values and inclusivity, impossible. That somehow in that moment light will dawn upon you, the Holy Spirit will come and you'll utter a sermon as good as anything you've ever heard. No, that's not what Jesus is promising at all. I suspect if the day comes for me, I'll probably have a heart attack on the spot and drop down dead or scream or something. I'm not being promised anything. The disciples were being promised something. The disciples were being promised the Holy Spirit's teaching of them to make the gospel known to all the world. The disciples who would become the apostles, who would write the pages of the Bible sitting on your knees, were taught exactly the words of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit so that inspired in your Bibles would be what you can absolutely depend upon with all your life. This is a touchstone, a cornerstone, a foundation of your sense of perspective and proportion and peace. 
you can be so sure that the Bible's teaching is faithful and reliable and you can base your entire life upon it because it came from Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to the Holy Spirit, to the disciples who became the apostles, into the inspired pages of Scripture. Jesus is promising that that would happen there before He ever went to the cross. And so He he promises them this world of fearless courage where they don't need to hide anything about who they are, unlike the religious Pharisees. And this is where we can now stand alongside them, having understood all that, and think, because we know, we truly know that what the Spirit gave the apostles is reliable, and what we base our lives on in the Bible is true, we can live freely. We don't need to hide. We don't need to be afraid of the counselors or anybody else for professing faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need to hide from God or from each other because how we live and what we have our hope in is true and reliable. When you go to school this coming week, or when you go to the office or the hospital or wherever it is you go, everybody else has life totally out of perspective, and they fear people that don't need to be afraid, and they have no fear of God who they do need to fear. And we're the few. We're the ones who've seen because of what Jesus said to His disciples that we can live the other way around. We're the ones with true perspective. We're the ones who can be at school and actually understand what is important and what doesn't matter. Here's, you'll only hear this once maybe at school. Let me tell you now, your exam results are not important. Everybody else will say they're the most important thing in the world. They're not. The fact that you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen King of the universe, is really important. All right, they're a little bit important. (laughs) Tiny, tiny bit. But they're not actually very important. You could be a dustbin man or a professor, but if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what matters. And if you're newly married and you've had your fourth argument with your spouse this week and are wondering what's all this about, you're the ones with perspective and understand what really matters in life. And if someone at the office is treating you in a toxic way, you're the one who understands what really matters and who to be afraid of and who not to be afraid of. You're the one who understands that, not the other people. And it's a world of open, light, grace-filled mercy because Jesus taught His disciples to fear the one who can throw your body into hell so that all other fear is gone. It's true. Not always very good at putting it into practice, but it's true. We fear God who values us in an incalculable way with incalculable love. If we fear Him and believe what He says, 
All other fear is gone. Well, did it work? Did Jesus' sermon to his disciples work? Did he persuade them? Was he right? He was right. They did go on to disown him and be forgiven and to stand before synagogue leaders and rulers of councils and all the rest of it and be martyred and tortured and taught the gospel to the known world because they weren't afraid. So it did work, didn't it? It really did work. So if it worked for them, my guess is it might work for us for the next six days till we're back here on Sunday. We don't need to be afraid. We have things in perspective. We know the truths of the gospel. So we can go and serve him like they did. Shouldn't think we'll be martyred this week, but we can serve him like they did. Let's pray together. Dear loving Heavenly Father, you give us in your words such vistas of truth, such light that shines upon our hearts and minds. We can be so confused and silly and mixed up and get things all upside down and disproportionately confused. And yet, Sunday by Sunday, day by day, when we turn to your words, you speak, you put things right again, and you enable us to live in Jesus' name, filled with your Spirit and able to proclaim that he is the one who is the only Savior. Lead us, Lord, to those this week with whom we can share our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Lead us, Lord, this week to dispel fear from our lives in a disciplined way precisely because we fear you. Lead us, Lord, this week to know the cost, the value that you have placed upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.